A shout out to all the new Patreon supporters. Thank you, Christopher, Alan, Devin, Stephen, Bryce, Rachel, and Andreas for your ongoing support. You can join Patreon and help the show at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this episode, co-host David Bilbrey sits down with the teacher, activist, and permaculture practitioner, Canyon Sayers Roots, also known as Coyote Woman, to talk about her work on the land at Indian Canyon, California, to educate and inspire others in their understanding of the natural world, the connections between individuals and communities, and what we can do to approach our interactions in all those spaces with humility. During their conversation, Canyon and David also touch on the history of Indian Canyon and the role this location had for indigenous peoples of California, being thoughtful with our words and actions, and to consider the impacts our choices have on ourselves, our descendants, and the land. Enjoy this conversation with Canyon, and I'll join you again after. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm down south of San Francisco about two hours with Canyon Sayers Roots, who I met at the Region 18 conference. And uh, Canyon, welcome, or I guess, welcome to me. Mishmintuhis, <laughs> <laughs> good day in the Mutsum language. Welcome to Indian Canyon. Right now, we are in the mouth of the valley of what is known as Indian Canyon. A long time ago, some of the original inhabitants or occupiers or colonizers of Hollister used to call it Indian Gulch, where all the natives went and have been. But when we think back and when we go further back before some of the establishments of some of our towns and our cities, indigenous peoples were stewards of the land and this is the land of my ancestors. I am so very lucky to have been born of my mother who was not planning on me, Anne-Marie Sayers, daughter of Elena Sayers, who is a full-blood California native woman who is from the Mutsun speaking territory of what is currently known as Costanoan Ohlone territory. The greater Bay Area between San Francisco down to, let's say, Monterey Bay, we use a phrase, or use two phrases, Costanoan and Ohlone. Costanoan is what the Spaniards called us, Costanos. And Ohlone is a word that is of a single village site in the Bay Area region, but it was just one village site. But it was a word that the community hung on to. It was a word that could unite and bring together people. And it was a native word, and it wasn't a colonial phrase or term calling us Gentiles or neophytes or savages. So it was an empowering word, and we still use it. Though, if you talk to more California natives who are re-indigenizing their vocabulary and becoming more aware and decolonizing their mindset of putting labels that outsiders have given us, we identify with words of our language. So if I were to say, I am a person of this land, in the Mutsun language I would say, Ama Piratakawas. That means people of this land. And we are in an Indian canyon, and it's a unique special place. It served as a safe haven for the indigenous peoples who sought refuge from the missions in the late 1800s, actually early 1800s, <laughs> my bad, 1800s, and those natives fled into these valleys, into Cienega Valley where it was mostly swamp lands, into the Gavilan Mountain Range, into this mile-long canyon where the Spaniards had a lot of trouble traversing. I bet that you had an interesting drive coming up here. You were lucky enough to follow us, but mm -hmm. you had to keep up. <laughs> yeah. And you lose cell phone coverage. It's, it's a way we disconnect. 
though my ancestors wouldn't have had cell phones. But coming to this land as a safe haven, to this day, it remains that safe haven. My mother has opened up this trust allotment because we are on the only federally recognized Indian country between Sonoma, which has Grayton Rancheria, and Santa Barbara, which has San Inez Reservation. The only federally recognized Indian country. Although we are not federally recognized as a tribe, we do have native land and it is a trust allotment. And it was signed over to my great-great-grandfather. And it identified him as a California native man that was through the Dows Act of 1887. That that was that my mother tapped into with less than three percent chance in reattaining the land of her family and her ancestors. She did it. She succeeded. And to this day, it is a safe haven for all indigenous people who need a space and need land to be in ceremony and to unite with the world and our environments. So we have in excess of 6,000 visitors annually come to Indian Canyon, sometimes just for a day, sometimes for a weekend, or for their vision quest, because we have intertribal communities, not just California natives, but people from all over the world. We even had some Swami people come into a lodge. They came out and they're like, oh, you have a lodge just like us. And we pray to all four directions. It feels like we're the same community. And that is truly real. When we recognize that as indigenous peoples, all of our communities, all of our families, all of our roots came from indigenous communities from all around the world. And when we recognize that, we can see that being indigenous or aligning with indigenous perspectives and value systems it's aligning with the earth and being conscientious and being considerate to how all life is sacred and how we are stewards and caretakers of this earth and we need to help and maintain this space as delicately and as respectfully as we would treat our own bodies and connect to that mindset and that's any indigenous nation from any territory mm -hmm. and i'm just so very humbled and lucky and blessed to be from this family that has always been from this land. My mother's umbilical cord is buried here in Indian Canyon. My umbilical cord is buried here in Indian Canyon. And I am very rooted and connected to this land. And I'm very passionate about honoring, honoring all life, but honoring the ancestors of whose land we are on. I do my best to conduct myself respectfully and make conscious minded decisions around what it is I need to be doing to raise awareness, to humble myself with the land, to be present-minded, and just to be conscientious of how my actions and my words affect all those around me. Not just my own self and my family and friends, but all of these beings, all of our kin, the plants, the animals, and how those actions and words will impact not only just a decision today or tomorrow or just over time. Think about would this be a decision that our great, great, great grandchildren would be proud of? Are we doing something great and wonderful? So I'm just kind of like one of those lucky, unique people that happens to be a caretaker and a steward of the land. And I continue going forward and honoring my ancestors and caretaking Indian Canyon. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here too. It's beautiful. It's very, it's very peaceful after a week in the, the big city. <laughs> right? You were su probably suffering NDD, Nature Deficit Disorder. Probably. <laughs> I have a lot of trees around me. Even though I'm in the city in Kansas, right. I got a lot of trees. So Lucky. It's nice to uh, be out in them again. Tell me a little bit about your, your vision to do um, permaculture and permaculture education out here. 
Well, I was lucky enough to uh, take a design certification course with Starhawk up in Santa Rosa, and it was just a design certification, and I was really excited to take it, not quite to get my hands dirty and engage in the actual coursework, more of get the inner workings and witness what it means to facilitate mm -hmm. that kind of space, because when it comes to allowing the opportunity for people to engage with their environment and connect with the land, there is something to be said when it is coupled and paired with indigenous value systems and knowledge. So to create a space to facilitate not only just permaculture design opportunities of indigenous botanical restoration as well as sustainable food systems and work with where we are at, we are off the grid. My mom had to put in a phone line just to make sure we had potential of being able to call emergency services, but they don't come out to us. <laughs> we have to drive out to them. And when it comes to stewarding the land, we have to use the tools and resources available to us. And because not as many resources are available, such as I need to get a hunting license and a fishing license to harvest and collect from the land and the world I live in. And then when it comes to certain plants, our communities, our indigenous communities, weren't able to steward the land these past generations in the way our ancestors used to. So some of those plants have gone dormant and they weren't tended to, they weren't caretaken. So they felt unused and unneeded and wanted. So we need to recultivate our relationship with the world and the earth. But I want to remind people that when we start aligning with indigenous value systems, we recognize with all life being sacred that Plants are not just a resource. They're not just something that we can benefit off of and that can help us. They are our kin and we need to have a reciprocal interaction with them. If I'm going to harvest any plants, I give something of myself, be it my hair, a pinch of medicine from my pouch, or a song or a prayer, letting it know that it will be used in a good way. I am thankful for the life that it lives and the gift that it gives and that I have that responsibility that I'm not gonna harvest no more than a third ever. And in that, I need to know, I've always lived that way. And I realize some people out there in the world still see plants and animals as resources or means of sustaining their livelihood, but they don't really care what goes into it. And I'm like, these value systems are something that I was raised with and something that I've learned over time through our communities. And I realize that I, I'm given this unique opportunity being this caretaker, as well as kind of being an in-between. I'm not a solid academic that people's eyes glaze over because I'm talking all serious and then I'm also not someone who doesn't understand kind of that ac academic jargon and the political jargon that I'm an in-between and I can facilitate conversations and storytelling and I want to open space here on the land so we can cultivate a stronger relationship with the world and have a sustainable community so allow it to be a teaching space a learning space and also a stronger sustainable space that our communities who come and visit can feel thoroughly connected, that we're not detached, like living systems and everything around us we are in unison with. And I, I really feel that this space can teach a lot. And the communities that come here for ceremony can also offer perspective and insight because native, being a Native American, we are not a monolithic culture. We are different and unique and we have so many amazing teachings and different ways and practices to engage in our environments. Some of our community will say, this is the way we do this and this is how we will always do it. Other communities say, oh, we don't do it that way, we do this this way. And when we come together, we can find sustainable resolutions of how we can be 
an intertribal, intercommunal space to honor all of life. Yeah, this place is, uh, it, it's a really special place. We'll have to do a few minutes of just the sound of the place after we finish talking. When I was younger, I was uh, given the opportunity to intern someone who was doing sound and lighting. And he hired me to go up and down the canyon and record the different sounds of water. Because my mother shared a story. There is a word in our language, rama. Our R's kind of sound like D's. Like kind of when you say butter, butter, butter. <laughs> the D, rama. Rama is not just H2O. It's not just water. It's not just what contains the water. It's the flow of the water, the spirit of the water, the sound, the presence of it, and the way it sustains our lives. Water is the blood of the earth. Another word for water in the Mutsu language is si. And that is truly all of water. And that is the ocean and the rivers. But Rama is that energy and that flow. And connecting to that and knowing it's the blood of the earth, we recognize there are so many different sounds and ways we connect with it. We are mostly water. And when we recognize that, we need to think about what we bring into our bodies. And so up here in the canyon, I went and I listened to the water in all of the different spaces from the trickling sounds to the babbling sounds to the shimmering sounds to the splashing sounds to the droplets and it was a wonderful opportunity to just take a moment to observe and hear those sounds and it was really beautiful to have a moment to meet someone in San Francisco who's a third generation San Franciscan and of course they know a lot about the history of the land of San Francisco post-colonization so I'm getting a tour from a San Francisco native, myself being an indigenous native of California, and going to Golden Gate Park and finding one little patch of that river and being so close to it that you don't hear any traffic. Mm. And how rare that was and yeah. how unique that was. And I'm just like, wow, I was able, I'm able to, to have been raised and present, be present in this space where this is my backyard. <laughs> So I'm, I, I consider myself very lucky and blessed, and I want to share that. It's, it's, it's a true spiritual wealth and a present-minded understanding that to share that wealth and to empower the community to, to connect is, is a way that we can all be richer in that spiritual understanding and that just communal sense. Because if we're going to be the change we want to see, we better be more inclusive and take opportunities to tap into that true resource of compassion empathy and altruism the last session on friday that we were in with several other of your friends was about decolonizing and specifically decolonizing the mind or i might say maybe decolonizing the being right the human being i'd love you to talk a little bit about that oh yeah i by no way or form and am any master or professional in this though when it comes to decolonizing our minds our beings and our sense of being it's to question and ponder why certain things are done the way they are. And for me, I kind of am lucky to have the perspective I have because I have so many amazing mentors and teachers and resources available to me, as well as the mindset to constantly question and pursue knowledge. So I'm able to learn, engage with new forms of media and also old forms of archival media mm -hmm. to become more familiar with truth and history. And when we start aligning with that truth and history, we start decolonizing our mindset. Why do we do things that we do? Is it because our behaviors have been shaped and shifted by influences, possibly by media or a political agenda or the common wealth of knowledge that people have called common sense and we need to do it this way because this is the answer or the resolution to this issue. 
And when we think about that, we need to find out why certain things are done a certain way. Why is it okay to bottle water and have people pay for it when it should be a right? Why is it okay to pollute these spaces because it's a marginalized, low-income community that they barely have resources? But I mean, true decolonization is questioning where all of this energy comes from. And when it comes to a lot of the things that are negative in this world that I kind of have a problem with, it, I, I tend to find out that it truly is colonization that is the cause. Colonization is an outsider coming in, claiming and staking claim to demanding that they are right or their perspective is right and they could do something better. That happens with gentrification and that has happened with California natives with the missions. People came from an outside world, came through and said, oh, these are not civilized people. We see them as subhuman so we can validate doing atrocious crimes to them and devaluing their way of life because they don't live their life like us and they don't sustain themselves like us. Even though some of the Spaniards suffered scurvy and they couldn't sustain themselves in this supposed new world that they were trying to pioneer like the gold rush. And the native peoples have been stewarding the land for thousands of thousands of thousands of years. And what makes me really sad is that if I use the word prehistoric and I play a game with some of the students I talk to in classrooms, their first thought is dinosaurs. But if I were to talk to an archeologist, prehistoric means pre-written history or pre-contact to the new world, pre-contact of indigenous cultures. So what does that mean? For California, that's 1700s with the missions a little before then, or United States and, the gov and uh, Columbus, 1492. That's 1492 and we're in year what, 2018? That's not that long. And even so, when people try and state claim that they believe in the Bering Strait theory, that native peoples crossed over and the first native peoples touched land then, there are actual artifacts and proof that native peoples have been on Turtle Island, what is known as the Americas, for more than a few thousand years than that 10,000 year ago, 11,000 year ago Bering Strait theory. And when we think about indigenous craft, what about canoes? What about boats? Why would we walk across ice if we had boats? And that's definitely a good conversation to have with an Alaska native. Really awesome. And same thing with Polynesian Islanders and same thing with Alaska, uh, Alaska, Hawaii and Santa Barbara. Think about listening to indigenous perspectives. But even so, if you believe in the Bering Strait and that's when the first contact ever happened, that's 10, 11,000 years ago. It's less than a thousand years that colonization touched the Americas. Look at the devastation to the populace of indigenous community members. Look at the devastation to our natural resources. Look at the devastation to our plants, our fauna, our animals, the extinction of many species. Think about that short, tiny period of time. All of that occurred. And that is due to colonization of outsiders coming in, staking claim, believing they are right. And it needs to take a step back. We need to empower our indigenous perspectives of all nations, of all nations. I happen to be very familiar with California native, but there are many indigenous communities of the Americas and indigenous communities of other nations. And we need to go back to those time held cultural traditions older than this patriarchal energy of colonization and industrialization and disconnection to our earth honoring that sacred and looking at these resources as, well, on a piece of paper, what is a resource? What is an asset? We are detached from it and we are not acknowledging it as a living being from plants and animals.
from the pipelines extracting oils to the prison, the school to prison pipelines, to our industrialization of these slaughters houses and the way we cultivate plants. We are doing it in such a detached fashion that we don't, we no longer honor that sacred and know that it might be a little more work to cultivate that reasonable relationship with that being and thank it for its life. And we try and state claim that we need to provide to the greater populace. But if we went back to our traditional roots and helped our own villages and our own communities and helped others, we would have a more sustainable future because we would go back to ways that we tended the earth in a more respectful fashion. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the whole decolonization issue that you laid out is really, um, it's really good to be reminded of that and hear it, especially from your perspective. As far as thought systems and ways of, of the mind, what is the difference between the typical non-native <laughs> Californian in like San Francisco or something and, and the indigenous mind? Well, what I've witnessed within our indigenous communities who have been reconnecting with their culture, there is a stronger sense of humility and also a stronger sense of self-awareness. So when I say that is the humility, when I witness someone out in the world and I see they look different than me or they have something different, let's say another culture, they, they're wearing a hijab, I'm not going to look at them and say, whoa, they're weird. What are they doing? They look different. What is that? There's a sense of that is another culture. That is another community. I know how I feel when other people point at me saying, you're an Indian, aren't you? Or you're a Native American, aren't you? And I say... A better way that we could approach that inquiry, if we really want to know, is may I ask what territory are, are you from? Or may I ask, are you Native American? Or how do you self-identify? And that's a respectful, calm, humble way, pretty much exuding humility, a humble way to inquire something that we are honestly curious about. But in today's colonial mindset, this let's just say this patriarchal, entitled colonial mindset in today's post-colonial settler disposable convenient society we just want the answer immediately like who are you why are you different why are you doing it that way and i don't understand you kind of like the mindset of like speak american and when people are like uh the first words of this territory would not have been english or spanish it's this entitlement like i could walk in and say what's what because i have the right and it's like no we all have a natural law and natural right to exist, but your perspective and your personality does not dominate another, giving you the right to demand or degrade or belittle or hinder someone else's perspective as being equal or possibly different than yours. And it's like, mm, I would say the post-colonial mindset couldn't make a healthy decision for the future because they haven't taken the time to think about how their actions and words impact not only themselves or their families or their communities, but the next generations. So the post-colonial psyche is that of which they are entitled to the land, entitled to the resources, and they have the right to it because supposedly their ancestors pioneered and worked really hard to get to it. So therefore they, too bad, I got mine, too bad for yours. When in all actuality, people are operating on ill-gotten, and they are on occupied indigenous land and they don't want to own up to the truth in history. And it's really hard because there are, is so much misinformation in how the education system portrays indigenous peoples. I can say from visiting missions 
they say the Indians came here voluntarily and they liked living here. Really? There are thousands of records stating how many hundreds of thousands of people died and the brutal affairs of how they purposefully and intentfully punished them to make examples of them. When the natives fled and ran, the Padres and the Spanish, the Spaniard soldiers would set examples by bringing them back and treating them so atrociously to discourage bad behavior that why can't that truth be just out in the open? I know we can't change it. I know we can't go back, like tell everybody to go back to their homelands. No, we have to live together. But guess what? The least we could do is honor that truth in history about that so we can walk forward to ensure it doesn't happen. But what everybody seems to do is sweep it under the rug saying, it's done, it's over with, get over with it. It's not like that anymore. It's like, do you even know what happened? So you can say it's not like that anymore. You don't even know what happened. And that is part of being accountable. You don't have to be accountable for the actions of others, but you do need to be accountable for your own education and taking some time to become familiar with the history of these spaces. I know not everybody wants to be a history buff, but to become familiar with other perspectives other than your own. Why is it that you benefit from this space? Why is it that you can enjoy these places that you live and you work at and just recognize that there is a deep history and presence here that is older than you and your family and it's good to just become familiar and aware. You may not need to do anything with that information, but to become aware is eye-opening. So. You know, in the last several years in permaculture circles and now in some of the regenerative business circles, there's, there is a, an awareness that we need to think of and plan for and learn how to live in ways that will make the earth a, a, an abundant and healthy place to live for 500 or 1,000 years in the future. And it's a great thing because for a long time, no one was thinking that way in the Western culture. However, what's really come to the forefront for me over the last couple of days being with you guys is how much there's already some people that have been doing that for <laughs> more than a millennium. So it might be good to at least ask what, uh, what they, uh, how they did that because right. uh, the knowledge goes back longer than 30 years that uh, permaculture and regenerative uh, right. ideas have been... <laughs> sort of fermenting so anyway I, I'm really thankful that I got to meet you and come oh, out yeah. here and just kind of connect a little bit with that that history and you can definitely feel it on the land connecting to the land and being present and being aware and just conscious minded of how our actions impact our environments but to learn about that history there are many native peoples who are healing these colonial traumas this historical trauma this oppressive trauma and lateral traumas some of our nations are still hurting and they still haven't found the best ways to communicate or efficiently share space in some of these circles. And we need to open space for our communities to help and be conducive of a stronger connection. So there, aren't, there are many natives who are amazing and badass. Apologies on us. And then there are some who are hurt and our community members may lash out at others but know that we need to humble ourselves in saying we're all at different levels of healing. And same thing with non-native peoples when working with native peoples. I, as a native person, do not expect every non-native to have some sort of oppressive guilt. I'm not trying to have everybody be responsible for atrocious things that happened in the past. But what I am asking people that I do encounter is that you become aware of some of the privileges that we all benefit from and become aware of the spaces that we are occupying and... Ask yourself, are we offering conducive resolutions 
whenever we're trying to solve problems, are we doing it because of our ego or are we doing it because we care about the earth and the spaces that we're in? And are we opening space for all perspectives to be present or as many as possible? The same way that we have witnessed in this patriarchal society that more women should be holding opportunities of business, more POC people should be entrepreneurs and we should empower these youth and give them scholarships and opportunities to be in these spaces so they get a chance to witness it and see if that's an avenue they want to take. The same goes in these circles that with this, these traditional knowledges that Native peoples have and hold, it's familiar to them and we may not use the vernacular of permaculture and biodiversity, but Native peoples have been saying, oh, you mean living off the land with respect and regards to our kin and our community? I'm sorry I don't use all that academic speak, but I know exactly what it means to do that. But some people dismiss that because we, as a post-colonial settler society, put value on academic accolades such as, you know, next level, higher level education when an elder of the community can tell you how to live, sustain, maintain, and be connected with the world and may not have a lick of Western education, maybe even was a high school dropout, but has so much, a wealth of so much knowledge that people tend to dismiss if, if they are in those academic circles saying, well, who is that person? They have, they, they, I don't recognize that knowledge base. And so we need to humble ourselves in honoring and acknowledging other perspectives have so much potential, capacity, and that if we humble ourselves and don't take so much space and offer space at the circle in some of these decision-making places, business opportunities, permaculture courses, spaces where people gather to make decisions or come to resolutions, to open space for people with other perspectives can be really, really helpful. That's what it means to colonize some of these spaces. <laughs> yeah, and, and mine. So tell me a little bit more about the land that we're on. Uh, how large is this valley? Uh, it's a mile-long canyon, and it's a spring-fed water source in this outcropping of granite. We have solid granite and decomposing granite. We're in this valley of a lot of California live oak and coastal oak, Laurel Bay, Manzanita, and Madrone trees, a lot of Brecon fern right here. Plenty of, I call them Himalaya berries, and they're, they're kind of just um, brambles and uh, berry bushes, and uh, plenty of poison oak, and <laughs> hedge nettle, stinging nettle, natural herbs, black uh, sage, gray sage. Uh, we have some transplanted white sage that succeeded. Uh, usually it grows in higher, drier climates, but it, it succeeded really well. And Indian Canyon is off the grid, it's 50 miles south of Hollister. It's not a park, it's the the headquarters of Costanoan Indian Research are uh, held here. And it's just the homeland, it's the home site of my great-great-grandmother and grandfather. My grandmother lived here, my mother lives here, I live here, my next generations will be here. My mother told me that I could do anything I want I don't have to take care of the canyon. I don't have to hold all this responsibility of maintaining the space and holding it the way her legacy has always shared. She said, I can do whatever I want. I could become a botanist in Brazil if I felt like it. And I said, mom, my ancestral lineage, my roots in the ground, I don't really have a choice. I may have the option, but I really don't have a choice. My ancestors, I am just the sole cumulation, cumulation, cumulation of cumulation. my cumulation <laughs> of my ancestors. And that being said, there are times that I speak in public settings where something will come through me, almost like 
this interesting way of like channeling some sort of energy mm -hmm. and I'm sharing and I'm flowing and I'm I can never go to a space with index cards and tell any type of organizer this is what I'm going to be talking about and this is how long how long I'm going to take I just free flow sometimes some organizers are frustrated because they're so programmed to the western paradigm of time and western paradigm of organization and structure that there needs to be an opportunity of just flowing I'm not going to occupy a ton of time in certain circles where they say you only got five minutes or ten but in these things I flow and I share someone will come up to me saying what you said was so poignant what you said changed my life what you said was so awesome I'm sitting here like oh, what I say did you record it did you record it because I'm like I I don't always strategize or try and think before I speak of course I try and make sure I'm gonna say the proper sentence or not go bleh 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 but I mean the energy and the delivery, the cadence, all of that fun stuff, it just comes through me. It's not only my own words. It's that of my mentors, that of my community and my environment, that of my ancestors, and that truly of my own self. It is me. I am that voice. But what is being shared and said is something that needs to be said and is not always just my own little mind creating it. It's mm -hmm. everything that I've come to realize and right. say, like, it needs to be said. And I wish... Oh, I wish I, I, I could I could write like I talk, but it doesn't flow that way because that's, you know, that's a little colonial mindset of... Right. Yeah. I resemble that remark as well. I don't public speak uh, in front of groups, but I do the interviews for the podcast. And in, oftentimes in these conversations for the podcast, we get into a place like that where you tap into something deeper than both of you. And in that context of a conversation, it really takes you into connection with each other, but also even with the, the earth and the wider community as you tap into the sort of the wisdom that's deeper than our intellectual minds. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> I, I love it when that happens. It's so cool because like, it, it's beautiful because awesome ideas can come of it too. I've always had some small sessions. What I call it with my some of my friends when I am trying to complete certain tasks, uh, I learned this from Lasara Firefox who wrote Jailbreaking the Goddess she doesn't really have a lot of time to hang out and just hang out. And I always tell her, I'm like, no, that I, I'm always so busy that I can never validate sitting around, hanging out, doing nothing. I do enjoy going to movies, enjoy something calm. But at the same time, I'm like, if I'm going to kill time, I don't want it. I don't want to regret it at the end of it. Mm -hmm. So what I like to say is I want to parallel play. I want to do something progressive and productive around someone else who's doing something progressive and productive. And if we align with each other and we both bounce off each other, we can, you know, accomplish a lot. But parallel play is really, really fun because, like, when you're around someone who's progressive and doing, doing good stuff, because kind of like the idea of, like, someone sitting down on the couch watching TV and you're having to clean. That energy is just like, ah. Mm -hmm. Unless someone really has that true OCD of wanting to clean and they don't care who's around. <laughs> but I mean, like me, personally, I want to be around other people who are kind of doing stuff too. And so parallel play is a great way to tap into that energy of like, I, I love what happens in those kind of interactions and sessions because we don't sit down and say like, we are going to make a logo or we are going to this. It's like, no, you're doing that. I'm doing this. Oh, I'm thinking about doing this kind of project and that, that, that. And then we start bouncing ideas back and forth like, yeah, actually, I'm going down that road, too. and It could be a totally different topic. That's what the fun part about being at um, Regen 18 was because everybody's from different perspectives, different circles, and I love how the answers or perspective offers overlap in all of them. Mm -hmm. From someone who's talking about the housing development crisis, someone's talking about permaculture design circles, someone else is talking about land management practices. 
Someone's talking about decoloniza decolonization of a conference or decolonizing the economy. What does it truly mean to stand in solidarity with indigenous peoples, become aware of indigenous issues, and incorporate indigenous value systems to our business management practices? I can find segues and overlaps till my heart stops because <laughs> I am a connector and a catalyst of ideas and energy. And sometimes I can't maintain all these ideas and projects, but I love offering them to people because I'm like, if I can't do it, if I can't accomplish it in my lifetime, but I have this idea, I want to give it to somebody to run with it, take it, help make it happen. Like, let it come full circle. I'll offer it to you. You tell me if it works and you bring it back and tell me, tell me the next level of success. Or we could do a pilot program or a conversation of what it means to work together and we can stumble together. We can work on this. And so what you witness at that decolonization workshop is something I really want to be doing in other circles. It is to have those conversations in other conferences and workspaces. Think about how sometimes some businesses had to go through sexual harassment courses just to become familiar. What was okay or what was permitted back in the day is not really totally okay nowadays. The same goes for being respectful and culturally courteous or at least culturally aware and having some level of sensitivity and regard and respect. And I think some of us still need to just figure out how to define these phrases. Mm -hmm. What is respect? Respect is given, not earned, or blah, blah, blah. And people are like, what is respect? Is it respect for an authoritarian figure, meaning to give up power? Or what is it really just to be in respect and regards and hold space with humility and tamping down that ego? And I want to start these conversations because, um, well, I, I'll make an example because I already do this kind of work. I am an MLD, most likely descendant, which means I am of, of a list of the Native American Heritage Commission, and that is a commission that works along lines with CEQA and NAGPRA regulation, California Environmental Qualities Act, and the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, meaning if there are areas that have ancestral remains or are archaeologically sensitive in various areas here in California, any new project manager wanting to build or engage in that land that will have any type of earth movement, they need to double check if that area has a trinomial of an archaeologically sensitive site or a known village site or other remains such as potential burial sites. They have to reach out to who the most likely descendant or local person, Native American, is to be present to watch this earth movement to ensure that cultural sensitivity and awareness are there an archaeologist and a native american monitor and even a biologist are meant to be present on any job site where this is happening and people do eke by and don't obey those rules which is really bad and frustrating it's saddening but the times that i am on those job sites at the beginning of every day or at least the beginning of every single project for sure the biologist gets to talk about endangered species and how much of a fine it is if you end up killing an endangered species or what you need to do if one is found Either you stop or you have to shift the workspace for so long as it travels or call a biologist and have them remove the species. They have that kind of little protocol and practice and then they have a little brochure handed out and give a hard hat sticker to say, you learned about this, you have gotten that teaching, that little session, and you got the little miniature, miniature kind of certification of saying, you learned. I want and have been doing that on an informal basis of cultural sensitivity awareness. Whenever I speak and welcome people to that native territory, I voice the importance of becoming a little bit more sensitive and aware that these are my ancestors. These are the community's ancestors who have always been of this land. And just because they don't have a tombstone and are in row positioning does not negate the fact that they are people and humans. And my mother and my grandmother believe that when an 
the body of an individual is unearthed, the spirit of that individual is wandering. So to hold that regard and respect. And the only way I get to make a comparison is, how would you feel if I went to your great-grandparents' plot on a cemetery and just bulldoze through it? Some people will say, oh, I don't care. And some people will say, oh my God, don't do that. And it depends on, you know, that level of empathy or, or anything like that. And so when I talk about that, I talk about cultural sensitivity and awareness and what it means to just have that conversation for those who may not mm. have that perspective. And I want to take this kind of allyship workshop and decolonization workshop to other spaces to engage people in some of these difficult conversations mm -hmm. and be okay with saying we're all learning together. We all need to learn how to work together, but I'm going to share with you some insights of what might be sometimes hurtful or even saddening or frustrating when other people who are not culturally sensitive or even just empathetic to other perspectives, how it can hurt or hinder a movement, a business space, a decision policy or practice, and just incorporate potential indigenous values to say, hey, let's start indigenizing our methodologies and decolonizing our mindset and just making the world a better place that all of us can consent to. And so I want to I wanna take this take this on the road and take this into bigger spaces and empower other native peoples to do the same. Mm -hmm. To say, hey, I'm figuring out how I'm going to make this little package. I'm going to figure out what it means to go to these spaces and also ha allow it to be sustainable in a respectful way, not exploiting it, but turn it into a workshop package, a session package to allow opportunities for other natives to be in positions like I've been put in to speak about things that are really important and offer that space for people who are really curious and really want to know and who want to sh potentially shift or at least just acknowledge that perspective. First and foremost, just look at it, just listen to it. If anything, learn a little bit about the history of the land and then go about your day and continue business as usual. But the least you did was you acknowledged it. And that is the first mm. step. Can you talk a little bit about your experience uh, in your PDC with Starhawk? Ooh, it's pretty fun. It's really cool because I, I had seen Starhawk in uh, other circles like uh, Pantheacon for a few years. And uh, she, she invited me another year. Another person invited me another year. And I'm like, okay, I got to make it. I got to go. And I was two days late. I really appreciated the space. They had more means and capacity to facilitate people staying longer, mm -hmm. which was kind of cool. I loved that it was interactive and she had multiple voices offering perspective and their experiences. She had teachers from the land. She had facilitators who were totally fully immersed and then some who just showed up and stayed for a little while and guest speakers and we got to go off site and visit a uh, permaculture design center in Occidental. Oh no, we drove by Occidental. We went to the permaculture skill set space uh, in Sebastopol and it was wonderful witnessing that. I appreciated that there was interactive learning. So sometimes we got our hands dirty. Sometimes we got to see things in motion. Sometimes it was a kind of classroom setting and allowing everybody to offer their insight. Like, do we all know the definition of these things? Or can we all get a, a feel of where everyone's coming from? And, and she grounded it with even holistic and earth-based spiritual kind of pagan-like roots where we open the space in a circle and we grounded ourselves and we stretched and we worked together because sometimes as you know new agey or hokey as that can sound when you align with everybody in the circle there's just a little bit more unity that happens there and that happens in some of our native american circles and our ceremonies sometimes when we all smudge in a circle or when we all introduce ourselves and get to know why we are there or share our nations to share where we come from where our ancestors come from or what we know just to feel included and heard and seen 
it says something to the whole circle because we are no longer detached saying, oh, that other body and that other person are over there and they said something cool. It's like, no, that person has a name and we had to engage in a repetitious fashion to acknowledge that person and a dance move to give them a to recognize them and calling to the elements and aligning, knowing that we align with the earth and take care of the earth, that the elements and the directions and the present beings, we acknowledge them and we all come from different belief systems. So everyone is given a chance to share and reflect that knowledge that they know and connect to. So it's inclusive. And then being able to learn like the serious in-depthness about it, like uh, healthy soils and how like compost is like totally going down and degraded or gray water systems or black water systems or some of these things like swales and all these cool fun terms and phrases that I can draw totally easily but I may have not figured out how to say those things like oh yeah we need to put like these zigzaggy lines on the hillside at the same elevation but how would we do that without all this modern technology oh we can rely on <gasps> ancient technologies that <gasps> indigenous cultures have been relying on for time and millennium and oh, we can use resources available to us because we use what we're given and what's available and how we tap into it and recognize that everything can be respected, regarded, and utilized and be helpful. And that we could care and be aware of the impact that we have in our environment. Instead of forcing a river to go a certain direction, we follow it and say, oh, we can steer it this way or use gravity to our benefit instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and say, let's move that all the way over there. Well, why would that be put way over there besides our own convenience? If we did it over here, it's already the flow of stuff and that's how it's going to happen. I really appreciated the insight that traditional knowledge is of many places in many circles. It was just cherry picking all the convenient ones, but it really does pay, pay tribute to saying indigenous cultures and ancient technologies are totally useful to tap into as resources. And as we tap into it in the modern day and age and use it for current issues, that we still need to honor and acknowledge all of that that went into that. Mm -hmm. Even though what we are being innovative and pioneering this new world in today's digital age and new technology because there is no place there's never been a time and place that we are at here and now that has ever been done in the past because we are breathing new air, we are touching new water. Maybe our ancestors remains are present there, but it's all new to us. At the same time, we need to honor the past to shape the future. We are looking back and relying on things that have been done, things that have always been done, and even though we're taking a new approach, we're not doing anything totally new, totally innovative. It's new to us, but we need to realize and honor all of that that has come before us and be humble in that. The awareness of history, I think everyone is getting more and more familiar with the history of the last couple hundred years and how destructive some of the thoughts and ideas and philosophies have been. So we've learned from our mistakes many times, and I think back through all of the different, or most of the, the different large thriving civilizations at some point in history, they all, none of them are here anymore, hardly. I mean, all the, you know, Rome and ancient Egypt and Incas, all of these different peoples. And so uh, we know why some societies didn't thrive. It's usually a similar theme. Um, and it has to do with agriculture oftentimes, <laughs> um, which also obviously has to do with just the core philosophy of living. But learning the cultures that actually have lived successfully for thousands of years, 
um, we need to know that history too because everyone's kind of tired of the history of what went wrong mm -hmm. and, and because it's boring because it's the same thing over and over civilization after civilization mm -hmm. they do the same things and like they didn't and there's no excuse now because we've got the books everyone knows right or can know the history if they want to right um, and so we need to put together these stories of what has worked in history and full history not right? just one um, and, and, culture's history and also when when people approach that in a colonial mindset they say what tools and resources and cliff notes worked when in some of the circles we realized and recognized there is no cheat sheet you have to live it and walk it and be accountable so in saying how do we get the answers we have to encompass and embody the answers. We have to be accountable in our actions and our mindset and how we conduct ourselves. But in that, the answers, a lot of people who write narratives to say, you know, the economy was like this, the populace was this, this is what happened, this is how it happened. They forget to say the people who were living there chose to or didn't choose to engage in their environments in a spiritual and sacred fashion because they don't want to go down the road of being like, woo woo new agey or spiritual they did because some people don't know how to speak about it or they don't know how to reflect it in a way that other people may be receptive to in reading they avoid talking about it they right. will stay to numbers statistics amounts and weather and all of that kind of jargon but they won't say when the people live in unison with the world around them in a even almost a ritualistic or a respectful fashion no matter what doctrine or dogma or anything that people live by, the credo of honoring all life being sacred and also acknowledging that all living beings are living with us and we need to be accountable for that life. And we need to care about it and our impact because we need to think and be responsible. The way some things happen are, if we're in this forest right now, it would be okay for someone to bring their pet dog and let their dog go potty. But if we only have one acre of land, in San Francisco, and we have a populace that had 10,000 dogs, it wouldn't be okay for every single person's dog to go potty on that one acre of land. But the people there would then say, well, if that person gets to let their dog go dookie, mine should be too, because I'm entitled to it. Versus them holding the responsibility and saying, I'm not going to allow that to happen because I know that there's only one acre, and I know that certain plants are growing there, and the impact could be really devastating if everybody did it. And it's becoming self-aware and self-accountable. Like so It's covering it a higher order uh -huh. because there's still, there's still rules except for it doesn't come about by being making, else telling you. making lists and, and then being enforced. It comes about by a mutual understanding and respect mm -hmm. of, of and for the whole system. Right. So when you have that understanding, you don't need to have politicians and write laws necessarily on paper and then have lawyers sue each other mm -hmm. or people over what the laws mean. Everyone mm -hmm. knows the laws if you're mm -hmm. connected in a certain way exactly. to the earth and to sort of exactly. the source of life, right? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's saddening because like I'll, I'll say even in some of our native circles, I see people conducting themselves in a colonial mindset of um, like a, like a let, let's say detaching themselves to a uh, ticket venue. The way I say a ticket venue is, let's say your grandmother lets you use her house and she's like, I'm going to be gone for the weekend and you can have a few friends over. You're probably going to make sure you know who's coming over. You're going to be like, yeah, I can have a party, but it's grandma's house. I'm going to make sure I'm going to have a crew of friends who are going to help clean up 
and you're probably going to know the greater portion of people coming in because you know that you don't want them to dis disrespect it and everybody's informed this is my grandma's we're cool but we still can have a good time and so everybody is recognizing that so they attempt to leave no trace left behind no crazy impact they care about how their actions and decisions affect you the person who invited mm -hmm. sometimes when we think we buy a ticket to a venue that they have the capacity they are hiring people to clean up I could litter at that venue because I bought the ticket. They're dealing with it. Mm -hmm. They're providing the space in the venue. I am a paying customer that I'm entitled to these things. And there's the detachment. And I'm seeing that happen in native ceremonies and communities where native peoples can come to a native ceremony. It recharges their batteries, but they're forgetting that to have a thorough and responsible and reciprocal interaction, that it be, to be thoroughly altruistic and reciprocal, giving of oneself, offering, and being minded, conscious minded of what we take. So when they are getting their batteries recharged with ceremony in that space, they also need to be willing to give of themselves. Are they helping with the wood? Are they helping offer assistance to an elder? Are they giving up their chair to an elder? Are they asking the host, do they need any help? Are they offering themselves in what needs to happen? And I'm seeing that colonial mindset infect our own native communities and they're disengaging in that and they're totally taking and taking like, oh yeah, I got my batteries recharged by this ceremony. It feels so great. And the organizers of that ceremony and that gathering are like, I don't know if we could do this next year. We're drained. We don't have a lot of help. We don't have a lot of resources. We don't have the means to facilitate this space. And the people who say they love it and want to make it happen are not thoroughly there to help make it happen. So reciprocity is, is, I've heard that kind of come up several times in the last several years, and um, that may be one of the key lessons that needs to be imparted, not just learned like by talking about it, but a deeper understanding it, of that reciprocity. It, right. I think you can only understand it by actually witnessing it live, mm -hmm. right? And so when you were talking about people asking like, what's the way, how do we do this, you know, tell me the cliff notes. It's like the way is entering into relationship with the earth and with other people in a certain way. And when you do that, you'll be able to hear, you'll be able to connect with your own intuition, voice, or and the earth and the um, deeper wisdom. And then the way and the actions and the things you will do with your life will open to you through that door. Yes. You, you can't have somebody, you can have someone identify who you are and what your gifts are and help you to, to foster those. Mm -hmm. But you can't have someone just give you instructions like in a, a PDF or a college you know, <laughs> course that's mm -hmm. gonna tell you the, the doorway in mm -hmm. which you have to go to enter into it's full a, it's life. A lifetime kind of dedication, or you learn it over time. Sometimes I've seen people do quick turnarounds. When someone has to haul their own water, woo, that is a great way to appreciate it. And not the convenient, like I'm gonna put my own self through boot camp and fill up and walk a certain distance or walk up the stairs and do this. No, every single day having to walk. Even like when I was talking to my cousin, Raz Kadi, a Pomo native from up north, he uh, got a piece of land to build this amazing nest project where it's a communal space coming together. He's doing great work, but he had to haul his own water to his garden. And it was technically only, let's just say 50 yards. His neighbor said, you can, you can fill up at my uh, uh, spout instead of telling his neighbor i'm gonna buy a hose and hose it he's like you know what my the neighbor said i can use a spout and i will haul and he hauled two five gallon buckets four times back and forth just for his garden 
and his garden is thriving and providing so much food for his community. And then he would do another two five-gallon buckets for his own household needs, for his drinking, and for his shower, and for his cooking. And when you realize what it takes to do that, your appreciation for water and resources just ups exponentially because some of us in mainstream society, it's available to us. We don't know what we have until we don't have it. And sometimes we're turning the water on, we're running the water, running our toothbrush under it, and we're brushing our teeth as the water's running. That's clean water that people do not have the luxury to enjoy that. Fresh, clean water flushing down the toilets. We could be collecting rainwater and flushing that because it's gray water. We don't need fresh, clean drinking water to do that. Mm -hmm. Let alone should we be even using flushing toilets. There are so many alternatives that are amazing. But in that, we need to be very aware. Like, it starts opening our eyes to so much. The same way I, I made an example of this yesterday as an indigenous woman who has worked with traditional ecological knowledge uh, programs and and workshops where I would show how we make a cornflower and grinding and grinding in a mortar and pestle and grinding and grinding and grinding. If someone's auntie or even them themselves had to grind all that acorn flour, do you think with that acorn soup or that acorn mush that that person would fill up their plate like they do at hometown buffet, have a couple bites and then throw it away? Do you really think that they would do that? they would probably be a little more empathetic to, wow, auntie spent a lot of time doing that, or, ah, I, my wrist hurts. How dare you waste that? Like, mm-hmm. I can understand if it's not good or something's wrong with it, but I mean, you wouldn't do that because that mindset, because mm-hmm. we are so detached from our food systems, our water systems, that we don't appreciate it, that we can't, unless you we encounter someone's like preaching, like, you're wasteful, 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 wasteful. Like, do you really think everyone's going to be um, willing to engage with that person who's constantly trying to preach in that negative tone? If, there, if someone comes at you saying, you're doing wrong, look at you in your plastic, or look at you wasting, 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 like, some of us would probably get really defensive, saying, mm-hmm. who are you to say this shit, especially you in this whatever, and come at them and aggress on them, when in all actuality, when you're in these spaces to humble ourselves walking it talking it doing it we're like oh oh my gosh i've been doing this for many oh my gosh i've been so waste oh accountability oh shoot i'm realizing wow i am waking up (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and it takes it takes having to walk it and talk it and live it and be it and account for it and sometimes it's uncomfortable there are true growing pains in it Mm -hmm. the same way when i realized i wasn't i was being a bad ally i wasn't being a good accomplice i was slipping up i have a few friends who are transgendered, who, who, who made the transition, or they choose to remain that third gender. And they have told me they like their pronouns to be they, or their, the acronym of their name, or their own name. And whenever they were around, I would say, oh yeah, they said, they said the same thing, or oh, they, they wanted to tell you this, or I would say their name, so-and-so said this, or when I was talking to so-and-so, that this was said, instead of saying what the presumed exterior, outward projected, identifiable being. If they were a female-bodied person, I would say the female-bodied person, but until they told me I'd like to be called they or I'd like to be called him, I would then be like, okay, I will respect you. I wasn't doing my due diligence when they weren't there. When my mom or my friends would say, oh yeah, so-and-so, she's such and such and such. I'd be like, yeah, her this, ha-ha, her, she, I would use that. And I'm sitting here like, I, I know they wouldn't like this. But I was so used to being that person who identify that person as a female body person i'm going to use those pronouns but i'm like wait a second it's just as bad as other people saying you're an indian aren't you have you even asked me if i identify as an indian maybe i don't and i don't like being called indian but did you even 
give me the opportunity to say what I am. Mm-hmm. And I realize I'm like, that's just as bad as the pronouns. And it's, but we should be comfortable with what we're familiar with, with the mindset that we've been brought up. I'm like, okay, you see a person walking away from you and they're in sweats and a sweater. Really cool pattern on the back of the sweater. What are you going to say about them? I like their sweater. Because you don't know the hoodies on. You don't know if they are a guy or a girl. You're going to say, I like their sweater. Okay, why is that so hard to do that with everybody? Until they themselves have chosen to identify, hey, what's up? I'm John. Okay. Hi, John. How you doing? And then you find out John chooses to hold that space and that that name, that presence, even if they're female-bodied or male-bodied. Like, until they self-identify, why can't they be they? Mm. I like their sweater. Right. They are cool. They're cool people. They're cool peeps. Like, why is that so hard? But it's not the way I've been taught. It's not the way that we know facts to be. The same way the earth was flat because everybody else told us that was the way it is. (laughs) It was flat until proven otherwise. Right. (laughs) Same way as women are meant to stay in the kitchen. Uh Uh-huh. 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 Right? And the same way slavery, they shouldn't have jobs like that. That's not their place. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Yep, yep, yep. It's because you're, you're following what the rules have been given to you. And the rules have been given to you by the elite few. And the elite few are focused on power. Yep. Well, <laughs> there we go. Right? <laughs> Gone all political on a permaculture podcast. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it's, been really, it's been really great being here with you and talking. And uh, mm-hmm. so in parting, um, do you have any kind of final thoughts you'd like to leave with the listeners? Learn about the spaces and places that you occupy in today's post-colonial settler society. Witness someone new, witness another perspective, and yeah, have some uncomfortable conversations. I do recommend if you do want to learn about more about the work I do in this space in Indian Canyon, IndianCanyonLife.org is something that you can follow up on. My name's Canyon Coyote Woman. I'm a social media activist and I love questions. I love interactions. So you can find me anywhere on all these spaces with Canyon with a K, Coyote Woman. And I I like keeping the conversation going. So in parting, start questioning. Start questioning why some of these things are the way they are and find out about the First Nations peoples in your territory and maybe try and meet someone or try and honor and acknowledge them. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. And that was Canyon Coyote Woman in her interview with co-host David Bilbrey. Find out more about Canyon's work at IndianCanyonLife.org. There's a lot to unpack from this conversation, with more emerging with each listen. I realized that my thoughts on what was expressed could easily take an hour or more to explore all the threads and thoughts that Canyon raised, so I'll try to keep this shorter than that. A piece that resonates with me from all of this is what we can do to ask better questions and seek deeper understanding. I heard that in Canyon's words when talking about the role of cultural recognition and identity and asking from a place of humility, getting to know the history of the land beyond the physical impacts of industry or previous development, but also of those who called that land home long before us and knowing how they got there, to recognize the distinction of being native to a place versus being indigenous to it. One of the reasons I found permaculture appealing decades ago was that as Bill wrote about the foundational ideas in the designer's manual, something that stood out was that what we are doing in our thought and design process is to look for what we can give first, and then consider what we might receive in return. By doing so, we build relationships in reciprocity. 
as we continue this process in our work with the land, let's take that a step further and deepen our work to honor and respect those people who came long before us and how they knew and interacted with the land. We have a lot to learn and a lot to share. What are your thoughts after hearing Canyon's words? Leave a comment in the show notes or reach out to me directly. Email show at the permaculturepodcast.com, call 717-827-6266, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. With only four regular episodes left in the year, I'm not sure which will be out in the next few weeks, as David and I are shuffling around the schedule so that we can explore some topics in more depth through a series of related interviews in 2019. Whatever may come, until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.